here someone outside of uh, the state of New Jersey uh, hears that the nickname of that state is the Garden State, that they either laugh or they scoff. Um, but that reaction usually comes from people who have never been there before, uh, not from people who are familiar with the state. It is what you would expect, I think, of someone who had uh, never actually been there. Like uh, if someone's whole experience with uh, the state of Washington was in Ritzville, and uh, they heard that the state motto or nickname was the Evergreen State, they might scratch their heads a little bit and say, how could that possibly be there? I didn't see anything green there in Ritzville. Though it's much less so today. Uh, for many years, the middle and southern parts of the state of New Jersey were covered in what are called truck farms. And I lived in what you would probably call a suburb of one of the largest cities in South Jersey. But when my parents wanted to get a freshly killed turkey for Thanksgiving, we drove just about 10 or 15 minutes from my house. And there was farmland, and there were farms there where uh, fowl were raised. Uh, I can still see the line of tractor trailers, big tractor trailers, sitting by the dozens on the roadside, filled with to overflowing, really, with tomatoes as I drove to work at the Campbell Soup Company in Camden, New Jersey. Those trucks, which were loaded from New Jersey farms, provided tomato soup for the world. And uh, that's how much uh, was being produced. One of my father's favorite summer meals was when he decided from time to have an all-tomato feast from time to time. Um, my, my dad had just those days when he said, this time we're going to have a tomato feast, other times we'd have corn feasts, and uh, he'd buy a dozen ears of corn for himself and a dozen ears of corn for the family. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> he would eat his whole dozen and we would eat the other dozen. Uh, my mother would make all kinds of things out of tomatoes, green and ripe, and my dad would make a massive tomato sandwich with mayonnaise and onion and lettuce, all well salted and peppered, and if once in a while we might throw a piece of bacon on there, but usually it was just the tomato. That was the highlight of it. Now, I'm telling you this because I want you to understand the importance of the next part of my introduction. That's part A. You have to understand, to, to understand the next part, that tasty, hearty, big tomatoes are a big thing for anyone who was raised in South Jersey. It's just part of our life to have those. The plastic-tasting, bland, cloned, orangey, red things that you get at the supermarket in netted bags or still attached to the vine so they look really like they're tomatoes, they don't count, believe me. If you've ever had a real, true Jersey tomato, they don't taste like anything. For years, we, Miles Bonnie and I, have been trying to grow New Jersey-quality tomatoes here in Washington, and we've utterly failed. Neither the soil nor the sun is right. But in our quest, I bought for Bonnie last year a small greenhouse, um, and she selected some promising pre-planted vines in the early spring and moved them into the greenhouse where she babied them, feeding and watering them with a mother's care uh, all through the summer with a South Jersey tomato girl 
desire to see that plant be fruitful. And the plants grew robustly, and they were filled with mouth-watering hopes uh, as the summer wore on. And we felt for sure we'd have some almost South Jersey tomatoes to enjoy. Soon those healthy plants were filling the greenhouse. I mean, you couldn't get in there. To, to it. This is a, it is a small one, but I could stand in it. So that'll give you some idea. And it got hard to walk around in there because of the plant. Expectations were high. But alas, um, it all came to a very sad and tragic end uh, when um, it was clear that uh, the plants weren't uh, going to come to fruition. To a couple with South Jersey tomatoes in their genetic makeup, it was just disappointing. We got a few nubs, you know, that looked like they might come to be tomatoes, but uh, they never really did. We got one or two, but not anything like what we were looking for. And that brings me to the third point in my introduction. As disappointing as it is to have an unfruitful tomato plant, it doesn't compare to the sad state of an unfruitful professing Christian. The two don't really compare at all. The scripture says that unfruitfulness is a sign of being choked by worldliness. It declares in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 22, Jesus there speaking says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful in their hearts and then proves unfruitful in anything that's produced in and of them. Unfruitfulness is a sign of being entangled. Paul tells Titus that it's a sign of being entangled in foolish controversies and genealogies and and dissensions and quarrels that in themselves are fruitless and worthless. He tells Titus in Titus 3.14, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. He says, don't let our people get involved and entangled in all these things. Tell them to get involved in good works so that they can help urgent cases where there's a real need and thereby be fruitful for the gospel's sake and for the testimony of Christ. Unfruitfulness is a sign of disease. As Jesus, who who said in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 17 through 20, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Unfruitfulness, the scripture says, is also a sign of detachment, detachment from Christ. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says in one of the most memorable portions of scripture, uh, John 15, verses 1 and through 2, and then verse 5, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you, 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So unfruitfulness is a sign of detachment from the vine, from Christ. (coughs) Fruitfulness, on the other hand, is a sign of connection. This fruitfulness in connection with Christ was prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Um, where Jesus is described as the shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So Christ being that shoot, he'll come forward, he'll bear fruit, and that fruit will be born then in those who are his. On the positive side of this, Paul says that you and I were redeemed to that very end, the very end of producing good fruit. In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. It's the psalmist who points out that the well-nourished believer is fruitful even in his or her old age. It's Psalm 92, beginning in verse 12. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Those who are connected still bear fruit in their old age. And fruitfulness is inevitable, beloved, in the believer, in the life of the believer. It's an inevitable result of your calling as a Christian. It says in Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 31, And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. I love that verse. It's such a beautiful verse. The remnant of Judah... Will, will grow downward, grow, grow downward into Christ, into the love of Christ, and it will bear fruit upward to the glory of God. And this fruitfulness that's a part of connection uh, is even to be found in difficult times. In Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 7, Jeremiah says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that send out, sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And all that that we've just said brings us around to the passage that we've been studying here in Second Peter. It is imperative, beloved, that those who go out into the world, who go out into the world bearing precious seed, bearing the light of the gospel into the darkness, going among the spiritually dead with the message of life through Jesus Christ, contending with the devil who was a murderer from the beginning, it is imperative that you own the precious seed, that you walk in the light yourself, that you have known and rejoiced in the newness of life that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and that in Christ you have overcome the devil. It's imperative that you be in that position as you go out with that intention. And all of that can be reduced to Peter's statement about the importance as a Christian of making your own calling and election certain or sure. He says in in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 here, Therefore, brothers, be all... um, Therefore, brothers... I'm sorry, lost uh, a page here for quoting. (laughs) But be diligent to be supplementing your faith with virtue and your virtue with knowledge your knowledge with godliness, your godliness with steadfastness, and that steadfastness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If they're yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, beloved, as we think about all these things, and if we've gone over them, this is the time for each one of us to earnestly and honestly, in our own hearts and before the Lord, to consider our fruitfulness. This is a matter between you and the Lord. But it's a vital and it's an essential matter. It's not one you can ignore. It's not one you can just fluff off. It's not one that you can just lay aside. It's an essential matter. Those connected to the vine must, the scripture tells us, produce fruit. Thomas Adams says, let your outward life witness to your inward grace. Let it be evident. And look for the evidence of that. Remember, the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall take root downward and bear fruit upward, Isaiah said. Now, we've gone over the qualities here that are referred to here in detail. Virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love for everyone. We've gone over that in some some detail. But consider now what Peter says about them. He says, if those qualities, those things that we've gone over, if they are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because whoever lacks these things is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I want you to notice first that this statement is conditional. That there's a condition involved. He says, if these qualities are yours. If these qualities are first yours, and then secondly, if they are increasing... Then they profit you and help to confirm your calling and election. 
So the condition is, if they're yours, and if they're increasing in you. So let's start with the possession of them. If you possess them. The question is, are they yours? That, this is the first issue, possession. Are these qualities, these things, among your personal possessions? Do they, or are they, existing in you? Virtue and, and knowledge and godliness and love, are they in you? Or do you possess them? In Matthew 19, a, a young man comes to Jesus, and he asks what good deed he has to do uh, to gain eternal life. An exchange takes place with Jesus, but it ends like this. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now you don't have any trouble understanding what is meant by possessions there, right? They are things that belong to him. And it's the same word being used in the same way by Peter here in 2 Peter chapter 1. If these are among your possessions, it's very evident that these are the things that belong personally and are precious to us that are being referred to here. And it's safe to say that every believer counts his or her faith as a precious and personal possession. And Peter here, in this context, is asking whether that aside from maintaining that faith, you also possess these other things, virtue and knowledge and self-control and, and all of it ending with love. And he says, that will profit you in your fruitfulness if those things are in your possession, if they're a part of what you have. Practically now, let's look at it this way. If you have questions about your fruitfulness in the Lord, the first thing to do is to be sure that these things are yours. And you do that by diligently seeking to add them to your faith. Not just haphazardly doing it. Not just occasionally addressing it. There's no way you can call that making a diligent effort. This is actually making a, a clear, pronounced effort to add these things to your faith. Not to justify yourself. You're justified by grace alone. This is to see fruitfulness in your life for Christ. And then the second thing he says is, if, they, if they're your possession, and then secondly, if they are increasing, that is increasing in number and quality, they will make you profitable. And this is really important, beloved, because it warns us not to be satisfied with mere numbers. It reminds us that the increasing here isn't just in numbers, but it's in quality as well. You may recall back in early September, we defined virtue by saying that to be virtuous is to rise above all that is sensual and earthly and crude and sinful, to, to float above it, not arrogantly or self-righteously or bitterly, but with a sweet spirit and an interest that becomes those who walk with God. 
That's what virtue is, to, to rise above worldliness. And this virtue is the active working of God's grace in the whole life of the believer. When you think of the gifts of the Spirit that are listed for us in Galatians 5 and 22 through 23, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the practical manifestation of virtue in the Christian's life. And it's nothing else but the working of those gifts into the fiber of your life by the Spirit. Your thinking, your speech, your, your behavior. And the more these spiritual gifts, the more this virtue is added to your faith and becomes the story of who you and I are, the fitter we are to serve our king and better suited we are to endure hardness and even suffer for Christ's sake. And using that one example, we plug it in here. Is this true of me? Do I possess this in Christ? And then if I do... Is it increasing? Is it increasingly becoming the story of who I am? And then you do that with all these qualities. That's just one. I'm just using that one as an example. You bring them all in. This is a story of who I am. Am I a man? Am I a woman? Or am I a child who is steadfast in my love for Christ and in my service of Christ? Do I love others? Do I love my brethren? Is it increasing? Is it something I possess? And increasing and is increasing in me. It's nothing more, of course, than the work of sanctification by the Holy Spirit and his cultivating these qualities in you. But he uses them, beloved, to keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses them in a preventative way. Peter says here that they keep you or they render you or they prevent you from becoming ineffective and unfruitful. And there's kind of a sense of ruling authority involved here. It's uh, used by Stephen, this word, to describe Joseph's promotion in Egypt as a ruler. The idea, says Adams, is he shall make you, not persuade, not entreat, nor move, nor allure, but make you fruitful by a lively and strenuous operation as you seek to supplement your faith with these things. You you think of the toddler that gets on the kiddie ride, and it, it might be a boat, or it might be a car, or it might be a truck, right? And when the child gets into that vehicle, whatever it is, it usually has a steering wheel and sometimes has a horn and sometimes even has pedals. And when that little one gets in it, they're spinning the wheel and they think they're driving, but they're not driving at all, are they? They're either inside rails that keep them in the way or they're in a, in a pond of water that's spinning around at a certain speed, even controlling how fast they're going. And they may be making noises, running the steering wheel, beeping the horn, and so on. But everything is keeping them at a certain speed within a certain context. And though that's there, they can't manipulate the vehicle. It just goes according to the speed that's there. In the presence of these qualities, 
I should say it is the presence of these qualities in the life of the Christian that directs him or her in a similar but a much more mystical and, and blessed way into being effective and fruitful for Christ. If you want to be effective in your testimony for Jesus Christ, if you want to be fruitful in your knowledge of Christ, this is the way to do it, to go back and, and strive to supplement your faith with these things. And if you do that, it'll keep you inside the rails in which you will achieve what you're seeking to achieve. This way we know that knowing who Christ is doesn't arise from the mere accumulation of facts, either historical or theological. That's not enough. That's not how you find out who Christ is. By memorizing facts about his life and when he lived, or just learning theological precepts. It's from a personal, experiential relationship with him arising from this working of his spirit in you as you seek to supplement your faith with these things. Now, I'm not discounting the other things. Now, we do need to memorize the events of his life and, and, and know what, what that is. We do need to understand who he is theologically. All I'm saying is that if we wish to be fruitful and effective, it has to go beyond that. And it has to involve this effort on our part by prayer and by study of God's word and by trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in us to add to our faith these things which make us fruitful in our knowledge of him and fruitful in our testimony for him. And we'll return to this in a moment. But consider the effect these things have. The possession of them, Peter says, prevents you from being ineffective in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It also prevents you from idleness. That's what ineffective, being ineffective means, being idle. It's a sad thing to become stagnant in your knowledge of Christ. It's even worse to allow that idleness to woo you into a complacency concerning him and his place in your life. There are those who are content with the scantiest understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what they have done for him, what he is doing for them. Peter says that the believer is different. He is after the fullest knowledge and the development of and increase of these qualities so that that will provide a deeper knowledge of who Christ is. That's what Paul is praying for among the Ephesians. When he says in Ephesians 1, Therefore also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will make you happy with what you know about Jesus. You think that's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians? Not at all. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He goes on in that passage. But Peter, by God the Holy Spirit, wants to shake any of his readers who are in this state out of that stupor, this contentment with having a stagnant relationship with the Savior. It's dangerous, beloved. It is suspicious, and it's inappropriate for the one who is growing downward in the roots and bearing fruit upwards. We go back to the Christian's calling and the way it's described by Paul in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So the supplementing of these things to your faith prevents you from becoming idle in your knowledge of Christ, and they also prevent you from becoming like our lame tomato plants, unfruitful, seemingly full of promise, but never actually producing anything. Peter says it keeps you from being barren without fruit or being fruitless. Remember how vital fruitfulness was as we described it earlier? This fruitfulness is essential to bearing witness to your being in Christ, beloved, to making your calling and election sure and certain. This is the very word the Savior uses in Matthew chapter 13 when he says that the word is choked and proves to be unfruitful. Now, we have the analysis of the problem, and we'll try to touch on that very briefly here. Peter makes the analysis of this in verse 9. He says, Because whoever lacks these qualities, virtue, godliness, steadfastness, and so on, is nearsighted, so nearsighted, that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So he's saying, whoever you may be, anyone who does not have these things in possession near at hand, anyone for whom they simply are not, or who doesn't have them in play in his or her life, Peter says that one is closing his or her eyes to this reality that he or she has become blind. Now, the nearsighted have a trick that they employ. And it has to do with squinting the eyes. And if you squint your eyes, sometimes if you don't have your glasses on, you can see things a little more clearly. And you can do that because you change the shape of your eyeball and somehow that helps. That's what they tell, tell me anyway. 
Um, and that's the condition that Peter refers to here. That squinting of your eyes to see something. It's the, it's the idea behind it. He's saying anyone who is not engaged in developing these things by prayer and, and by study and by reliance on the Spirit, anyone who doesn't have them at hand but is content with what they have, is closing his or her eyes to real life, the real life of the believer, <coughs> and blinding himself or receiving that blindness that results as uh, from squinting the eye. He goes on to say that he or she is willingly oblivious, and that's the very word Peter uses here, oblivious to the fact that he or she was or is cleansed or washed from old sins. The individuals who are in the state of having been cleansed have an eye that reaches far beyond what is near. <coughs> now let me try to explain what that means. That's squinting. To see what's near. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> it is everything about the present that keeps men and women shut up in regard to the gospel. It's everything about the urgency of the present. I'm too busy. I know I'm supposed to be out there bearing fruit for Christ, but I'm too busy. I've just got a lot going on in my life, and I'm too busy. The, the urgency of the present keeps me from being able to do that. It's not just the right moment. They'll, they'll come the right time, and I'll, you know when it comes, I'll know it. But it's just not the right moment. It may cause me trouble now. I, I don't want to do it because I, I just don't want to get involved in the trouble. It may just cost me too much right now to be bearing that kind of fruit. Now, be sure you see the link here. Failure to supplement your faith with the qualities listed here by Peter, by the Holy Spirit, is the thing that will render you short-sighted. In other words, all these present urgencies will loom so gigantically in your sight that you'll lose your ability to see other, larger, more important things that were opened to your sight when you were cleansed from your sins. For example, just consider this morning, beloved, what you would look like without Christ and his saving and cleansing work in your life. Without the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just ask yourself, as you're making these judgments, if I have forgotten what that would look like. I only have a minute to consider it. But just think how warped your passions and your lusts might be if it were not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. What wounds your soul might be bleeding from 
what demons might be found distorting your reason, plaguing your memory, stabbing your conscience on the one hand with hot irons, and on the other hand, dulling it to destructive sins. Imagine your tender heart vexed, vexed with sins, and the mockery of the one who holds the lost in bondage, forever chained in their sins and being dragged to death, never knowing the bread of life, never drinking the joy with joy from the well of salvation. That's what Peter's talking about. You step back. And you stop thinking about the present and where you are right now and you get this bigger picture of what would I be without Christ in my life? Where would I be without the grace that's been shown to me? And you see how the urgency of the present kind of melts away in the light of that? How can someone who takes seriously where they would be without Christ Say, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, I'm too busy right now to serve him. I, I've, got, you know, I've got an agenda and I've got to keep up with that. Do you see how it affects it? But if you're seeking by prayer and by study and by anxiousness to supplement your life with these things that are born of the Spirit, that are part of your relationship to Christ, those things remain open to you. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light, and the Lord walk as children of light. Peter says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Paul says in Romans 6.22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. But this short-sightedness blinds us even more. It blinds us to the sorrows of those who are lost in trespasses and sins and their end. Thomas Adams says, if you could see so far as hell below, if the smoky gates of that bottomless pit were opened to give you but a glimpse of the damned spirits under torture, those flames, those shrieks, those fears and horrors, that palpable darkness mixed with unquenchable fear, fire, if you could see the reprobates ever boiling, never consumed, ever dying, never dead, ever crying, never pitied, with no possibility of comfort, uh, how would your hearts be burdened for those lost souls? If you could see into the horrors of hell right now, do you think you could lift your eyes and say, well, I'm too busy to attend to this. This is not the right time for me to speak to that person who's on his or her way to hell. It's just not the right time, not the right moment. I put this off for another day. No one would be saying, I don't have the time. Or I think I'll just wait until it's more convenient. All excuses melt away in the horror of that scene. And thirdly and lastly, if you could see far enough to consider the glories and the blessings of heaven, 
well, we'd have a greater sense of urgency too. We tend to value the present far too much, beloved. And we're all guilty of it, all of us. Because we undervalue the future. There's no time to consider the glory and the majesty of heaven this morning. The delight and the wonder of the presence of God. The joy and the camaraderie of the righteous that belongs to those who believe. But you know how it is, how it is beloved. You find or discover something blessed and you can't wait to tell others about it. Maybe it's something you've tasted. You can't wait to tell somebody else how good it is. Maybe it's something you've watched or seen. You can't wait to tell somebody about it. Our neighbor took a picture of a double rainbow over our street the other day. She couldn't wait to show it to Bonnie and let her see. And when she showed it to Bonnie, Bonnie brought it to me. Look at this rainbow. I would think about these things in that context. We survived without Christ. And look what I found in him. How can I keep that to myself? Look at the sorrows and the terrors of hell. How can I keep that a secret from people who are dying? And I know this is according to God's election. We realize that, but he hasn't told us who they are. He's told us to go out and bear precious seed among all. And he'll take care of bringing his elect in from that. And so our view of that is out there and they're lost and he's, he's given us the calling to bear fruit for his glory. And we look at the glories of heaven and how can we keep that to ourselves, beloved? But how do we get there? How do we get to the point where these things really bear down on us? By having an eye for these things. In Second Peter, verses 5-8, through eight, he says, For this very reason, make, very, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and your virtue with knowledge. Why? Because if these qualities are in you, you possess them, and they're increasing, they will keep you. They will prevent you from being unfruitful and ineffective in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll not only have that knowledge, but that knowledge will begin to bear fruit. And that's what we're talking about. Going out into a dark and dying world and bearing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. We rejoice in what we have for ourselves, but we look to add love for all, to all those other qualities, including our faith. And that love for all urges us, moves us, to bear the gospel to others. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would give us a true sight of all that is ours and all that we have in Christ. And we pray, Father, that we would carefully, systematically seek to supplement our faith with these things, that we might be prevented from becoming ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of Christ and therefore in our testimony for Christ. We're going out into a dark and dying world. The work we attempt to do is opposed by the one who hates us, who hates you, who hates your word, who hates the gospel. And Lord, to be equipped for that task, 
We have to be sure and certain in our own possession of faith and the joys and the delights and the truth of what we're bearing. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to that end. And Father, we might be known as a witnessing people, both in the way we live, in the way we talk, and even, Lord, in the way we think. Please, Lord, have mercy on us. We're weak. We, we need the strength and the help and, and the, the wisdom of your spirit working in us through your word. Lord, we pray that you would apply that word to our hearts. And where we are weak, make us strong. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.